0: morning. Some of you guys are like, we just saw you. And that was enough for a while. And you're probably bummed that I'm back again so quickly. But I'm excited. Let's uh, flip open if you have a Bible to James. Um, We're going to be in James 1 26. So uh, Mark asked me to preach uh, and to preach a couple of times. And I decided to tackle the book of James, partially because James has always frightened me, actually. And I find that with passages that scare me, the best thing to do is to preach them and head into the fray. But I realized that a potential uh, something that could be you might think is, oh, this guest speaker thinks we gotta hear it. Like he need he thinks we need to be laid into. I, I don't know. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but what I'm saying is as we're going through this, I chose it because it humbles and frightens me. Uh, not because I was like, I'm going to get those people out at Grace Presbyterian with the book of James. Um, but uh, one of the beauties of Scripture is when you come to passages, you know that we believe that the Scripture is the divine word of God, right? And so if, if there's something that's at fault, it's not the Scriptures, it's me, right? And if I come across passages that frighten me, that alarm me, that make me rework things, I am the one who has to, to submit. I am the one who has to be... Reworked. Um, and I feel that as I approach James. We're about to look at 26 and 27. Before I read it, the last thing I would say is uh, it's important to know as we're doing this that James loves the people he's speaking to. The more I've wrestled with James, the more I see it. It's, it's, a, it's like a disciplinary conversation a little bit, but it's a loving one. He loves the people he's speaking to. Uh, and it's important we have that in the tone of what he's saying. I think we could do that with Jesus, too. We can read Jesus rebuking. And it's helpful to remember, Jesus loves the people he's speaking to. He's here. He's speaking to them because he cares. That's the same with James. So have I, have I set it up enough for you? Yeah, <laughs> it's like, what's in this passage? All right, um, let's do it. James 1, through 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray together that God would bless this teaching of the Word. Father, we're humbled by your Word. Uh, You say it's a sword, that it pierces, and it does that. I ask that the words I would speak here would clarify and not dull your word, that I would not get in the way, that we would sit humbly before you, trusting that these are words of love coming from a loving Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, growing up, a real formative experience for me is, uh, some of you probably have similar stories. Saturday was chores around my household, and frequently, and I, I wonder if my dad would create chores that forced him to go to Home Depot, you know? Um, Oh, got to go to Home Depot again. Um, And so I have a lot of vivid memories of hopping in the back of my dad's car and driving out Saturday morning. And frequently, the soundtrack for that trip would be the Beatles. Um, And my mom was terrified that we would grow up and do drugs if we listened to the Beatles. So if mom was in the car, it was something else. But when it was just dad, we would throw on the Beatles, you know? Um, And I loved their music. I had no idea about the, you know the cultural ramifications of their music or that they were high most of the time they were doing it. Because um, when you're a kid, it's funny, uh, you listen to the Beatles music, and you know, the biggest rock band in the 60s, and they sing a lot of nonsense. But when you're a little kid, you think, in most situations, if I don't understand, it's my fault, right? Like, I don't understand a lot. I'm seven. So uh, the Beatles sing about loosing the sky with diamonds. It must mean something really important, and I just haven't figured it out, you know? Uh, but I've, So I've kind of had this moment, I've been going back and listening to a lot of the music I listened to with my dad, and it's been really fun to do. But I've been reading books about the 60s rock music scene, and an interesting thing about that time was, you know, when I think back and think there was this explosion of recreational drug use, this is going somewhere, I promise, hang with me, uh, there was this <laughs> explosion of recreational drug use, and yeah, as someone who didn't live through that time, I think, well, they just, it was kind of hedonism. But when you read, like, Brian Wilson, the lead singer of the Beach Boys, or John Lennon or George Harrison, when they talk about the drugs they were using, they use a lot of really religious language. And they actually thought that it would reorder the world for them in some way. That it was going to give them meaning when they didn't have meaning before. And it wasn't hyperbolic when they said, like, this was a religious experience for me. It was religious to them, which is why so much of their music was about it. Uh, And, you know, if you look at somebody like John Lennon's life, I don't know about you, but if I think about John Lennon one of the lead singers for the Beatles, I picture him as like kind of he's for peace, he's a pacifist, really public, political guy, all this. Well, it turns out his, his son, his firstborn son, would go on to say this about him. I have to say that from my point of view, I felt like my dad, John Lennon, was a hypocrite. Dad could talk about peace and love out loud to the world, but he could never show it to the people who supposedly meant the most to him, his wife and son. How can you talk about peace and love and have a family in bits and pieces? No communication, adultery, divorce. You can't do it, not if you're being true and honest with yourself. And what's interesting is if you look at their lives, like John Lennon would claim this big kind of a religious epiphany, but his life was one where he, he left his wife, he left his firstborn son, he ignored him, he married another woman, and then cheated on her for a while. And if you just follow the... And Brian Wilson had a total breakdown... If you follow their lives, it's like they had this big emotional, what they viewed as a religious experience, but the fruit of it was devastating. And a lot of the people from that time period would look back and agree with that. You know. uh, basically, the recreational drugs and LSD didn't make John Lennon a better father, right? Didn't bring him into greater communion with his family. Well, it's easy to pick on the kind of 60s version of that, I think, but I think there's a Christian version of this story actually there's kind of a christian b-side and this is what james is getting at uh there's this story a a story that could go really well and could go really bad and the story is you know when i was 11 or 12 i went on a christian retreat and it was really powerful and it was really emotional and I, i heard the gospel presented and i committed my life to jesus but then did anything change Or do I just keep looking back at that one emotional experience like this reordered my life but the fruit of my life doesn't reveal that? I think James would say, I am 100% positive that James would say that the person who says, well, yeah, my life doesn't look very much like a Christian's life and I haven't really been following after Christ but a long time ago I I made this commitment. James would say that person is self-deceived. He would say it's not a good story. We shouldn't find comfort in it. And part of the part of the heart of this passage is the idea that we can easily deceive ourselves into thinking we're religious when we're not. We can claim to belong to the kingdom of God. We can claim to have peace and love while serving ourselves, while leaving the widow and the orphan abandoned, while soaking in everything the world has to offer. And so when James says this passage, I think he's looking out at a congregation uh, that comes out in this passage. They're speaking badly about one another, Uh, they have no bridle on their mouths. They're speaking poorly about people. They're probably a little arrogant about, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, but it doesn't affect their decisions. And he is, you've got to wake up. This is not a good story. This is not how it works. This is not how you can find comfort. You think you're religious. This is not religion. So James goes into two things. He gives us a picture of false religion first, and then he gives us a picture of true religion. So uh, let's look at false religion first. So In verse 26, he says this, If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. All right, this is strong language. (laughs) And uh, it should raise some questions. It does for me. I mean, my first impulse when I read this is, Okay, I hear you, but I know my Bible really well. I'm saved by grace through faith. And when you say, Are you saved? I don't say, Well... Uh, I'm saved because of Jesus, plus I spoke really well. That's not the gospel. So what are you saying, James? Well, I think what James is getting at is he's saying, he's, he's not saying like, oh, now you're saved by the good things you do. He's been to Sunday school. He knows the truth. What he's saying is that there is true faith, there is an authentic faith, and there is a false faith, a dead faith. And the true faith looks differently than dead faith. And he even says later on, he says, like, some of you will say, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And we see the attitude he's getting at is this attitude of like, look, I'm a Christian. Uh, It doesn't matter what I've done, really. Jesus got my back. I'm good. I can just live as I want. And he's saying you're deceiving your heart you don't have the true faith i'm talking about you have it when you encounter the holy god something changes something changes in you and if it's not happening this should be alarming for you it scares us when we put it in the framework of a uh, relationship with god but i think this is really obvious in other relationships right like if you see somebody somebody's married and the guy is just living as if he's not married he's He's uh, sleeping around with whomever. He's out on the town all the time. When he says, I love my wife and I'm married, you laugh. Because you know that's not true. Right? You don't live. It hasn't affected you in any way. You're just living for yourself completely. It's not. You're not being faithful to your wife. You're not moving towards her uh, in any way. Right? And we see that, and that makes total sense to us. And it's the same thing kind of applied here is what James is getting at. If we're saying we're entering into this union with God... Something is going to begin to change about us. And that thing is, we're going to start living and looking like our father. We're going to start looking like our dad. And he says this later on. He says, hey, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's saying that the faith of a person who has this powerful moment but never changes has a dead faith. He means it. It's strong language, but that's what he means. You could see how this would go really hard against a kind of escapist Christianity. Like, I said a prayer, I'm a Christian, now I just hang in there until the end, and then I die and I go be with God. That story uh, is compelling and it's in the water a lot, it doesn't seem to have a very good God in it, I don't think. Because if God is truly good, then why on earth, after we have come to know him, after we've said, I'm going to follow you, would we hide away from him? Or we'd be like, well, I'm not actually going to do this because I don't, I don't actually really trust you. And this is part of what James is talking about. Uh, two weeks ago, I spoke about, uh, some of you may remember, I spoke about um, these smoke jumpers who went to fight fires in the West. And they had a guide who was trying to lead them to safety, and they neglected him, right? They didn't follow their guide, and they died. Um, Now, what James is getting at is, if we're in a situation, in this situation, there is this guide who's leading his people away from this raging fire, and he says, this is the way to safety. And if we say, I believe that you exist, but I'm going to do what I want to do, that's not faith. We have not followed, right? Right? But instead say, I trust you. I trust you with my life. I'm going to follow you. And that's what James is talking about. Saying, hey, God, I believe you exist. He says, even the demons believe that. And shudder. It's bad news for them. I'm not talking about just basic assent. I'm talking about, do we follow after Jesus? Do we follow after him? You can be assured that if you trust Jesus, he will take care of you and lead you to the right place. You can be assured he will speak to the Father on your behalf. And so the question he's raising is, do you follow him? And this isn't just James. This is all over the place. This is all over the Bible. Uh, Paul says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. There it is. He's saying, "You you were brought to faith. You were saved for good works. You have a function. We're joining our Father in his work. And as James is saying here, if we're not doing that, We've missed the function of this whole thing. First John says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. The truth is not in that person. This is how we know we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him <clears throat> must live as Jesus did. I hope you see what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is, being in relationship with God should change us. It should. Now, it's not going to make us perfect. But it's going to change us. There's going to be a struggle. There's going to be a fight. Uh, If you've ever seen people in difficult relationships, you know the difference between somebody who's just running away from it and somebody fights for that thing. right? We've been summoned to the fight. And so the first place he wants to get at his audience a little bit is he's saying, let's start with with how you speak. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Uh, The scriptures talk about the word of God all the time. In the beginning, God created. And how does he create it? He speaks it. Let there be light. Light. And constantly, Jesus is referred to as the word made flesh. And so God's speaking has this creative power. He renames people. He recreates us. He makes us new before him. And so if the language that we use is not for that purpose, is not for creation, is not for blessing other people, then we're running against our Father. Uh, A while ago, I went to see, I guess this is the rock music concert, uh, rock music sermon. I'm using all these illustrations. I was in Nashville, and U2 came through. Um, Huge U2 fan. Don't get me started. All right. Big U2 fan. Anyway. Bono's on stage, the band is playing, and what I didn't know then, and I went back and read some of it, but I saw a lot of this happen, there was this guy up front who's holding up a sign saying, I can play guitar. And uh, Bono Bono is singing, and the the band has walked off the stage, and Bono looks down and sees this guy's holding up a song, I can stand, sign, I can play guitar, and Bono's like, all right, come on up here. Well, what Bono doesn't know is the guy is blind, can't see. And so they have to try to help him up, and Bono finally realizes, like, oh, man, man. List this guy up and puts him on stage, goes over, he's like, give me my guitar. And you can hear him, he's mic'd up. He's like, give me my guitar. He takes his guitar, and he hands it to the guy, and he's like, what can you play? And he says, uh, I can play All I Want Is You. He's like, let's do it. And right before the guy, the guy puts his guitar on, Bono's guitar, and right before he starts playing, you, he, we could all hear him say, and uh, Jess, my wife here, still remembers this, he, was, he said, I'm real nervous, man. Uh, it's like, this is a packed house. Um, and Bono, Bono, totally undeterred by that, is just like, one, two, three, and kicks him off. So the guy just starts playing. And at first, Bono is like watching him and making sure we're on the same page and starts singing, you say you'll give me a highway with no one on it, treasure just to look upon it, all the riches in the night. And as he's playing, he's getting more and more confidence. And Bono is feeling good about this guy knows what he's doing. And so Bono kind of turns and begins to face the audience. You say you'll give me eyes in a moon of blindness, a river in a time of dryness, a harbor in the tempest. And at this point, the band has recognized what's coming on, and they've come back on stage. And so at this point, Larry Mullen, the drums start to kick in. And Adam Clayton on the bass starts rolling. And they are performing with this guy playing the song. But all the promises we make from the cradle to the grave when all I want is you is the song. And at this point, the guy has just faded into the band, and the band is, is going full blast, and we're ecstatic. Um, and the song ends, and the guy finishes playing, and he takes off the guitar, handed it to him, and Bono says, it's yours, keep it. And uh, what was amazing about that moment was the pure joy in the audience. Like, we were ecstatic for this guy. There was no envy. It was really a cool experience. It was just like, yes! This is the greatest thing I've ever seen! Uh, and I looked up Later, I, I was curious about this story, you know, and it, seeing it all happen, incredible. And the man is Adam, and uh, he w- said that he went backstage, they took him backstage, and he's with Phil, the guitar technician, and he's like, I'll never, I'll never play this guitar, I mean, it's got, like, Bono's fingerprints on it, like, what do I do? And the, and the guitar technician looks at him, and he's like, well, it's got three sets of fingerprints on it. It's got mine, it's got Bono's, and now it's got yours. It's yours, play it. Uh, it turns out the guy was a Christian, and he said, "He said, you know, blindness can be so claustrophobic. Uh, but he's like, for that moment, to be able to reach out and help others, I felt like that was what God wants us to do, and I had this moment where I got to do that and sing a beautiful song for a bunch of people. Okay, the reason that the unbridled tongue frustrates James is because he knows what it's supposed to look like when we're in tandem with our father. And what it's supposed to look like is he pulls us up on stage and hands us his instrument and we can barely play at all. And he's like, that's perfect. And he begins singing and we join in with him and it is beautiful and rejoicing. And our fingerprints are on that guitar too, right? That's what it's supposed to look like working with our Father. And so when James hears his people cursing each other out and just speaking like everybody else, he's like, ah, no, I've seen what it can be like. We can sing with the Father, right? The good news of the gospel that you've heard. That God is good. And he's come for his people. He's renaming us in his image. And James feels the weight of that. And he's saying, look, if you're not getting on stage and playing, it's worthless. Why are you here? Let's do it. What's waiting for us is so much greater. Get up. Grab the instrument. Let's play. God wants to play with us. He wants to sing over his people. So then he moves on. He says, like, so that's what false religion is. False religion is we're not getting on the stage. We're not playing. You're missing out. He says, true religion is this, true religion, religion that is pure and undefiled before the God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, this is not like a comprehensive list of what Christianity is about. He doesn't mention baptism or communion or any of those things, right, or worship. But he's boiling it down close to what Jesus boils it down to. Love God the Father and love your neighbor as yourself the royal law. And it's important when we get to things like this. Okay, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows, to keep oneself unstained from the world. If we don't have a good God behind that, you'll never pull it off. It'll be devastating. Christianity without a good God is terrible. It doesn't work. It's awful. Uh, I think a lot of us wrestle with that. And we try to do this Christianity thing on our own without the beautiful God in the background. It's very difficult, impossible. And if we think about the movement of God in the history of man, it's from hearing on earth us cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then coming as Jesus, going on the cross and saying that same thing, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Entering into our pain, coming to be with us, moving towards us when we were hopeless and helpless. He empathizes with the helpless so much that he says, whatever you do for the least in the community, you do for the Lord. I empathize so strongly with those who are helpless that when you do things for those who are helpless, it's like you're doing it for me. Uh, Some of you know that experience of when somebody really does something incredible for one of your kids and you just feel this. They, might, they may as well have done it for you. They may, it's beyond even the gratitude you would feel if they did it for you. You just feel this overwhelming. And that's how God is with the people who are suffering, who are on the fringes. And in that time, that would have been the orphans and the widows, people who are hopeless and powerless. He's like, you, you want to know what true religion looks like? It looks like being like dad. You know what dad does? Dad goes to the helpless. He goes and he loves them and he pours into them True faith loves God and the neighbor. You know that love your neighbor as yourself, it's an amazingly Soren Kierkegaard actually talks about how brilliant the line is. Because there are so many ways you might try to escape that there's no way out of it. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you're the kind of person who loves themselves and looks out for yourself as number one all the time and treats your neighbor poorly, that command comes at you like a ton of bricks. Love your neighbor as yourself. Gotta love them the same. If you're the kind of person who hates yourself and you're constantly speaking down on yourself, right? That command comes roaring at you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, And then you might want to find an uh, escape hatch with, like, neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor, right? And Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's even somebody that you hate. That's your neighbor. Anybody who's around you is your neighbor. There's no way out. But there is another escape hatch, I think, which is, We can remove ourselves from the presence of our neighbors. I think that's probably the most difficult thing about kind of modern America, is we can alienate ourselves from people who suffer very easily. Uh, People who suffer, we put over here. Um, I I had a friend say, I mean, how many people have I seen die? Have I been at their bedside table? Death is something that happens away from me, right? We alienate those who suffer. Uh, in The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis's book about heaven and hell, it's a fictitious account. He creates hell, and he says, what happens in his hell is that uh, people live in, hell is just a big suburb, <laughs> okay, uh, and these people live beside each other, and they hate each other so much, they keep moving farther and farther away, like they keep living in houses beside each other, like, hate that neighbor, and so it becomes this ever-expanding suburb where everybody's living totally alone. I don't want to be near my neighbor. I'm going to run from them and from the command to love them. Uh, But what James says here is, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is to visit. You're not getting out of this one. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Go! That's what God does. He came to us. And that's what we do as well. We go. Our job is to emulate our Father and go to those who suffer and serve. This isn't a political thing or something. This is what our dad does. Uh, And you can see, again, if God is not good, if we don't have a sense of how God came first for us, this would be very difficult. And I'm just going to man up and do this. But if God is good and I recognize that this is what my father does and he's coming with me, we're playing music at the same time, I think it becomes a lot easier. I may have used this example before actually in here, but it's probably been a couple of years and, you know, maybe you could use to hear it again. All right, uh, there was a guy from St. Louis when I was there named uh, Micah Miller. And he was just a, basically a normal youth group guy. Uh, went to church, did youth group, went to college, all that. But somewhere along the way, he took this mission trip to Honduras, to Gusagalpa. And while he was in Gusagalpa, Honduras, he noticed that the homeless boys There were homeless boys everywhere, Uh, that there wasn't enough money and families were just kicking their sons out on the streets. And these sons were getting roped into these rackets. Um, Their only payment at the end of every day of working is they would get this bottle with glue in it that they would sniff for the night. Uh, And so these boys were were perpetually um, under the influence and lived horrible lives. And so he just decides, I'm just going to move to Honduras and do what I can to help. So he goes to Honduras, and when I got to visit him, it was like 10 years after the fact, he had built a house in the city called the Micah Project. And every boy in Honduras knew that if they wanted a safe place to spend the night, they could go to this house. The only rule was, he was like, you can't bring your bottles in here. And some kids would go, and they would stay, and they would stay, and they would stay. And the difference between the boys who who had come in and stayed for a year and the boys out on the street were unbelievable. One was dead and one was alive. And he did that. Uh, The Micah Project was started because he recognized he had a father who came and visited the orphans and the widows whose heart broke about those boys in Tegucigalpa. He heard that, hey, whatever you do the least of me, the least, it's like you're doing it for me. He said, these are my kids. Somebody's got to get out there. Somebody's got to show them that they have a God who loves them. And I'm inviting you to join me. So I hope you're beginning to see that we do the kind of things because God first did them for us. We speak with creative power. We speak encouraging words. We serve the helpless because God's doing them. He loves doing them, and he invites his children to do his work. So the last thing. So we've seen false religion is if you you can't bridle your tongue, you're probably deceiving your heart. Your religion's worthless. You can't just say, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm going to do whatever I want. That's not faith. That's not trusting in Jesus. That's not what it looks like. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is to visit orphans and widows, and the trickiest one, I think, to keep oneself unstained from the world. And this one sounds like a landmine. I mean, there's so many different approaches. What does this mean? To keep oneself unstained from the world. I mean, do we go Amish? You know, what do we do? Uh, And it's a great question, and there are as many answers as you can possibly think of to this question. And I'm not going to solve it for you right now. Um, but I, I, I'll try to give us a little compass through it. Is, Firstly, I think, I think there is this idea of uh, reactive holiness versus kind of a true organic pursuit of God. Uh, reactive holiness is like, I'm constantly, I'm constantly afraid of the things that's coming at me from the world and like, no on this and yes on this and no on this and yes on this. And organic holiness is like, I'm pursuing after God and the things that help me with that are coming along for the ride. Uh, It's a positive outlook as opposed to just a negative, right? Um, I think some of us, I think too, when we think about being unstained from the world and what that means is, they say the world has this whole system of what's good and what's valuable. Being super healthy, making tons of money, looking awesome, having tons of followers, Uh, being promoted several times, these are the things that are good, right? This is what the world says is valuable. It'll give you security. And James says, that kind of thinking is rubbish. And wherever it's sneaking in, that's where we've got to look out. So wherever we're tempted in those things, that's where we've got to look out. And you can see how this is a lot going to depend on personal conscience. Um, But I think some of us on like the macro level, we're really good at big decisions, making faithful big decisions, like what kind of job am I going to have? Where am I going to move? We submit to God on those big ones. Uh, but we're not as good in kind of the daily, the daily life. Uh, this is me, totally, I think. I'm not saying I'm great at the big decisions. I just feel like when the big decisions come, I'm more aware. Like, this is something I need to be bringing before God. This is something I need to be thinking about. And on the kind of micro, what's, like, what's my daily ritual look like? It's more likely that things are going to sneak in that are telling me that the priorities of God are false. And what's important is success, power, and all these kinds of things. The Bible has a, a picture of this. is actually this story, um, Esau and his brother Jacob. And uh, this is way in the Old Testament. And Jacob is the second son. He's not going to inherit everything. Esau's the first one. And Esau loves to hunt. And he goes out, and he's hunting one day, and he's been hunting for a long time. And he comes back home, and he's really, really hungry. And Jacob has just made, like, his favorite soup And Esau says, dude, I'd love some of that soup. And Jacob says, I'll trade you your birthright for the soup. And Esau's like, man, that's a high order, but I am really hungry. Deal. And he makes this trade. Uh, And if you think that's unrealistic, you should come join me. I was just talking to someone about this. You should come join me in, I teach at a boarding school. I work in a middle school boys dorm. If you've ever brought a whole pizza into a middle school boys dorm and opened it, It's bad. Um, I've probably lost my temper three times in five years I've been working there. They've all been food related. You will not eat all the bacon bits. Okay. Uh, But uh, what we see with Esau is he trades his birthright, his inheritance, for a thing of soup. And sometimes what I see in myself is like, I'm so wrapped up in these small, petty distractions I haven't had a, like, a time with God in a week, am I trying to trade my birthright for some soup? Like, am I just trading this kind of, like, feels really good right now for me just to plop down and watch Netflix for two hours, and that's totally fine, but am I creating, like, a life where I'm just consistently trading my, the soup for my birthright, my birthright for the soup? Uh, that seems like a real danger, culturally. And James is saying, like, pay attention to what's important. Pay attention to what's important. What's important is our Father and drawing near to him. So, at the end, what do we do with this passage? I think there are two there are two things I want to take away from this. Is firstly, if if you're someone for whom you've said, you know, I really I became a Christian when I was younger, and I do feel like I haven't really followed after him. I've seen it as kind of a license to do what I want and kind of know that I have this catch all at the end. And this passage makes me nervous. I read it and I I think, have I really tried to follow after Christ? Then I think the challenge for you is find someone to talk to about it. Uh, Meet with Mark, talk with him about that question. Like that passage really kind of woke me up. Um, What does it look like to follow after him? And the other side, I would say, if you're someone who is uh, pursuing after God, my, my, my challenge to you would be, remember that the God who is, that you are following is really good. He's really good. It's a privilege to join him in the work that he's doing. Uh, and if for you it feels like serving others and doing all this has become very tiresome and weary, my challenge to you is to go back to the God who loves you a lot who came for you, who wants you to join in with him. I'm concerned that this sounds so hard to us because we've missed out on how joyous it is to work with our father and to see the one who loves us. So we love because he first loved us. Let's pray to him now. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this passage. It's scary, it's hard to think about, It's a big challenge. Father, we are inadequate. That's the gospel. We need your grace. I thank you that you're the one who pulls up up on stage and puts the instrument in our hands and starts to sing alongside with us. Help us to join you in your work. Help us to see how good you are. That these things don't become burdensome to us, but they're a joy. It's a joy to serve alongside the loving Father in Jesus' name.